but it's it, it's it's like saying you know can I post a perfect Renaissance poem so that we can see how I don't know Salville fails. Um, <laughs> I know you're my go-to person for that poem. Um, there ma there are as many different A papers as there are unique individuals in this class. It's only that you didn't all write them. <laughs> you could, you just didn't. No, it's it's there's way too much conformi conformity to models in people's writing, especially these days. Um, the not back in the day, you never got prompts. No one gave prompts, and then some administrators thought prompts would be good, and people started being told you have to give them prompts, and it's really bad for people's writing. And the reason you're like unhappy not to have a prompt is because you've had that crutch for so long, the crutch of a prompt. It's also the crutch in guidance. No. But here you are a senior, <laughs> <laughs> graduating, senior, college education senior, almost done. Like discounts and like helpful <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> Look, it's, I'm perfectly willing to say that, that um, I'm not happy about it, but I'm perfectly willing to say that if you really weren't moved to like say something that you cared to say um, and that you meant about something in the course of the 150 years of poetry that we're reading, um, it's not the poetry's fault, it's my fault. Um, as I said, I'm not happy, but I'm willing to say that. But um, we spent a lot of time reading a lot of really amazingly great poetry, and you spent a lot more time reading some for the test that will occur on April 30th. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff to talk about. So let the, let, let the poems be your prompt. <laughs> Just worse and worse, huh? What can I say? Do you see... Do you, do you see why it might be an issue? I mean, for the point of view of someone grading, I can, I suppose. No, for the point of view of someone grading, prompts are infinitely easier. Yes, but I guess as an educator, you're against prompts. Yeah. But I think that once we get out into the world and start working, our life is more prompt-based than generative. <laughs> yeah, but eventually you'll be prompting people, right? Well, true, but then so the point is to learn how to prompt, is to learn what a good thing to think about is, and to develop it yourself rather than relying on others. But studying prompts would allow us to know how to format our prompts once we have them. See, these poems are your prompts. Okay. <laughs> Look, you're prompted by no prompt. It's fine. Okay. Um, how are we doing with Paradise Lost? Hard, easy, fun, not so much fun? Hard but fun, that's a good answer. How many people is it your first time? Okay, wow, all right. And um, did everyone get through book three? <laughs> it means two people did, three? Okay, good. How far, so um, I think that was the official assignment. I mean, obviously I said read as much as you can. Um, but book three was the official assignment. Okay, fine. Um, it will be on the test. Um, I'll even think about prompts for Paradise Lost. How's that? I'll think about them. I won't tell you what they are, but I'll think about them. <laughs> um, okay, hard. How hard? Does anyone... Um, how, how basically should we set down a template for it? Yeah. It, the difficulty for me came from there's so many notes, and it, it's not difficult to understand once you read the notes. But the problem is that there's so many, and they're always like back to back to back that it really threw off. My In that mind. edition, really? Yeah. Um, Crap! I thought I got an edition with very few notes. That was the, oh, that's not the Christopher Ricks. They seem to be. Is it Chris? Um, no, it's LeCompte. No, it's no. Wait. Sorry. <laughs> no, I told them to get. No, it is Christopher Ricks. They're like two notes a page. Look, look. 
No, and this is normal. They're the Talmudic editions that have like one line and then commentary and commentary and the commentary and commentary and the commentary. So, okay, back-to-back -back notes, go on. It's, and reading the, it wasn't difficult to understand, like the notes were actually very, very helpful, but I found myself a lot of the time, I would read it once and keep on pausing for the notes and then go back and have to read it again to get like the rhythm down. Yeah. So it, that So you got to read it twice. Up, yeah. So that's um, great. Cool. It just ended up taking a lot longer than I thought it would. Okay. Well, it, you know, it is possible to skip the notes. Yeah, but then you wouldn't get like. No, and then like and then go back. Oh. Um, you know, skip the notes just to get to get the rhythm. Um, just to say, Paradise Lost has the arguments, those italicized parts at the top. Mm -hmm. um, they're there because in the first edition um, they weren't, and um, Milton's publisher. So the first edition was published, and Milton's publisher got many, many complaints from readers saying, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so it's not just that you're reading 17th century English and that in the 17th century they spoke that language and were 100 times as smart as we are. Um, they didn't speak that language and they weren't smarter than we are. Um, and they had trouble with Milton. So the publisher said to Milton, can you like give summaries <laughs> before each um, book and maybe, I don't know, prompts? And um, Milton said, well, okay. Um, so he did. And interestingly enough, he gets at least one major thing wrong in um, his summary. So um, even Milton, by not rereading before doing the summaries, and it was hard for him to read because he was blind, um, his daughters read to him, um, but in not rereading before doing the summaries, um, wished that he may have wished that he'd said something that he didn't, um, or may have wished that the plot went in a way that it didn't. Um, I think it's a Freudian slip that he makes in one of the summaries. But the point now is that, um, yeah, it's hard. And the way you learn to read Paradise Lost, uh, um, it takes a while, but the way you learn to read it is sort of to give yourself to it and to the major things that are going on um, and on subsequent readings or when you focus on passages because they're particularly powerful or because we do them in class, um, the details will, will become more and more clear. But, you know, it's like seeing a really fast movie where ton, which is really rich and where tons of things are going on. So you, you watch it again and you, you get a lot of what you missed. And I think that's an okay way to read it. I think reading Paradise Lost the first time without notes at all is fine. Um, it's like reading Shakespeare the first time. Um, no notes can be fine. And then I picked that edition because Rick's is actually very light with notes, comparatively speaking, and um, is um, therefore doesn't interfere too much with you. Um, Leah? I found that, like the parts where it was most like, uh, like, the Odyssey or the Iliad were the parts that were hardest for me. Like parts where they'd be like, and then they raged upon heaven, and this person helped, and that person helped, and here's why this person's unholy, and here's why that person's yeah. unholy. And it was just like, you're telling me the names of all of the people and expecting me to know all these references that I do not know. Right. And that was nearly incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. But when it, once it got to actual like theological arguments and plot, it was fascinating. It's yeah. just you have to get there. Okay, yeah. So part of what's happening is that he's doing... One thing that real epics share is a kind of encyclopedic quality. Um, that is, what Milton is doing is describing how the world got to be the way it is. Um, and not, you know, how certain things happened, but how the whole world got to be the way it is. Um, and so that means that there are going to be lots of times when he does talk about the whole world. Now, one of the things, since you brought up the Iliad, um, one of the things that um, the Iliad gives you and then the Aeneid also gives you is what is a catalog. Um, and in the Iliad, it's a very famous catalog of ships. So what Homer does in the Iliad, do people know about this? If you took English 10 or Hume 10A? So what Homer does in the Iliad is um, in book three, he says, tell me, muse, since I can never remember by myself, um, all the ships um, and all the different um, navies and armies and um, clans and groups that came with Agamemnon to besiege Troy. And you then get 700 lines 
a list, basically, that's 700 lines long of everyone who came to fight the Trojan War. 99% of the people in this list are never mentioned again. And in fact, 99% of them are only known to the modern world because they appear once in this catalog. Um, so name after name after name after name from place after place after place after place that there's nothing known about them except that they appear in the catalog of ships. So why does Homer do that? He does it because in a sense what the epic is is it's a record of everything. It's um, if you were there, your name will be mentioned. Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's like the Vietnam Memorial. Your name is there. Um, and it may, not mean, it may not mean anything to anyone who reads it, but, it's a, but, but there is this sort of honoring of the fact of your having been there, and that's what Homer is doing in the Catalog of Ships. So Milton is picking up on that um, idea in a quite brilliant and different way to give you the Catalog of Fallen Angels. And um, what he's basically doing is saying, if you have heard of any heresy, if you know anything about Greek or Roman or um, Egyptian mythology, um, if any of this is something that you know anything about, you'll recognize um, some of these names. And then you'll realize wh who and what the rest must be like. James Joyce, to speak to a more recent encyclopedic novelist, has a famous passage in Finnegan's Wake. Do people know about Finnegan's Wake, his last novel? Um, well, if you've tried to read Ulysses, Ulysses is like Dick and Jane compared to Finnegan's Wake. Um, but there's a famous passage in Finnegan's Wake. Um, Finnegan's Wake is all puns. It's all pun all the time. Um, and the puns are in like eight different languages. So that makes it that much harder. Um, if anyone's read The Bell Jar, the main character in The Bell Jar is trying to write her th senior thesis on Finnegan's Wake. And she doesn't do so well. Um, Sylvia Plath? Yeah. Um, at any rate, there's a passage in Finnegan's Wake where um, you have eight pages of puns on river names. Um, so there's the River Liffey in Ireland. And um, at one point, the narrator tells us that actually the name of the River Liffey is Anna Liffey. That's the, that's the real name of the, of the Liffey. Um, and at one point, the narrator says um, her, her Christian name was Anna, but her married name was Mrs. Liffey. So the pun is on the Liffey, but also on the Mrs. Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah, so basically, if you read through these I don't know, 10 pages of Finnegan's Wake. Um, they're puns on the names of at least 800 rivers. Um, now, 800 is a lot of rivers. Um, I doubt anyone could name more than 50 rivers um, without, without doing a lot of thinking. You know, the first 10 come fast, and then it gets harder. Um, so 800 is a lot of rivers. So someone said to Joyce, why'd you put in all those rivers? Who's going to be able to follow that? He said that it was his idea that sometime in the 21st century, some child would be um, sitting reading Finnegan's Wake by his local river, and then he'd see his river named in Finnegan's Wake, and he would be thrilled. Um, so I think that uh, that hasn't happened very much. Um, but the idea is that it's a little bit like Velcro. Um, that is that there are just things sticking out everywhere. And only one has to catch you. And if it catches you, it's doing, or only a few have to catch you. And if they catch you, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Because, because you're a human being, Paradise Lost is about you. And um, therefore, the kind of richness and density of its references, when they're being rich and dense, um, they have to do with trying to cover, um, trying at least to intersect if not to um, be, if not to contain um, all human experience. They're trying to intersect with all experiences that any human being might have. Yeah? I tried at the end of the first book to make a little like pyramid chart of the hierarchy in hell. Um, and I'm probably going to butcher things, but it said that he chose Azazel as his right 
as his right hand, quote unquote. Um, but then in book two, it mentioned Beelzebub. Yeah. And it almost sounded like it was implying that he. Yeah, the Beelzebub's his right hand. Oh, really? Because yeah. when they were walking out of the um, the river or the ocean of fire, it says that he took Azazel to his right. I remember I had. Yeah, but Beelzebub is the person he first speaks to. If thou beest he, but yet how fallen. Okay. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know Beelzebub is famous as the Lord of, does anyone know what he's known as? The Lord of the Flies. Oh. Um, so the only, there are a couple of people you really need to know. So I, I'll just tell you who you need to know, who's who among the, um, <laughs> among the fallen angels. The only one who really, 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 really matters is Satan next to Satan, but Satan is the only one who really matters, is his minion Beelzebub, who's really his window character. Um, his, his right-hand guy, the guy who helps him plot, and the guy to whom he can say what he's thinking and feeling. There's also Belial and Mammon, because there's several people who engage in debate and counsel about what to do next. But the only one who really, truly, absolutely matters is Satan among the fallen angels. Among the unfallen angels, most important after God is the Son of God, whom we meet in book three. After him, they're the archangels. And the archangels who really matter are Gabriel, Michael, Uriel, Uriel yeah, Raphael. and Raphael, good. Um, Raphael is the most important in the story. That is the most important for human readers. He does, he's not the most powerful of the archangels, or he doesn't do the most, um, um, in the action scenes, he's not at the center of them. But the action scenes are not, for our purposes, for human readers, the action scenes are not the most important ones. So Raphael talking to Adam and Eve in the middle of Paradise Lost, he's the affable archangel. And he's the archangel who blushes. Which one? Raphael. He blushes because one of the heresies in Paradise Lost, which is a book thick with heresy, is that Milton, it seems very clear to Milton that Adam and Eve had sex before the fall. That is, that there's nothing wrong with sex, which is counter to a whole lot of Christian doctrine. That Adam and Eve, in their bower, in Eden, were procreating, they were being fruitful and trying to multiply, and they were doing it in the um, time-honored way in their bower, and they actually do have sex before the fall. Um, and they like it, as they should. It's very healthy. Um, and when Raphael explains various things to them, Adam says, and Raphael tells them how great it is to be an angel and how if they're really good they may be angels one day too, Adam actually has a question, which is, he says, but, you know, but sex. What about sex? Do you guys have sex, you angels? At which point Raphael blushes. And then he says, I don't really want to talk too much about that, um, but let me just tell you, without love, there's no happiness. Um, and we're happy. So if you actually try to follow through what angelic sex is like, it doesn't seem like... Um, what you would expect from an orthodox account of um, angelology. Um, so Raphael is the affable archangel who spends a lot of time talking to Adam and Eve and really likes talking to them. Um, Michael is the head of the heavenly host in the battle against um, the rebel angels. Gabriel um, is the person who's going to blow the trumpet in The Last Judgment, and he's put in charge of guarding the Garden of Eden. Um, Uriel is the regent of, don't say it, anyone else? Regent of the... Sun? Of the sun, S-U-N, sun. Good. 
Um, then there are some other angels who are not archangels, but who are also important to the story. Ithuriel, Zephon, and Abdiel. Ithuriel and Zephon are only important because they're involved in one event. Anyone remember which? So Satan enters the Garden of Eden and squats like a toad at Eve's head. And what does he do? Yeah, and he gives her a dream. And while he's busy doing this, giving her a dream in which she thinks that she's um, sinning, Ithoriel and Zephon find him and um, touch him, and he becomes Satan again. And then Gabriel confronts him. But that's really all they do. Abdiel is important. Um, he's the one angel you haven't heard of who's important. You know, you've all heard of Gabriel and Michael, and you should have heard of Raphael, although you may not have. Um, unless you know the Ninja Turtles. Um, and um, Uriel, maybe, maybe not. Um, but Abdiel, Ithuriel, and Zephon, you never would have heard of, except for Paradise Lost. Um, but um, Abdiel matters. For, so for the ones you haven't heard of, Abdiel is the one who matters. Um, yeah? I'm curious as to where he got the names. Like, how many of these names are actually in the Bible? Because I've heard a lot of these names before. Yeah. And I don't know if they are referencing a knowledge of Paradise Lost or if Paradise Lost has gotten them from somewhere. I think every proper name in Paradise Lost comes from somewhere. Okay. Um, Milton was insanely learned. Um, he knew Hebrew, for example, um, which very few people, very few Christians of his day did. Um, he was insanely learned. Um, there is a totally wonderful book, completely wonderful book, called The Dictionary of Angels by a, name, a guy named Gustafsson. I think it's Lars Gust Gustafsson. But A Dictionary of Angels. Really, really wonderful. And it, its whole title is actually A Dictionary of Angels and then in small letters, including the fallen angels. Um, and what Gustafsson did was he got all the angels from um, all sorts of hermetic sources. Um, you know, from secret Egyptian um, uh, religions and so on. Um, so they're all in this Dictionary of Angels. Great book. Um, one of the angels in a Dictionary of Angels, some of you will recognize, is Metatron. No one know who Metatron is? Metatron is the voice of God. Yeah. Is the, the voice of God. The voice of God, where? Uh, in Good Omens. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, before, I think before Good Omens, Metatron is in, um, he might be in Dogma. I tried. Oh, you're right, he is in Dogma. I love that. Okay, he's also in um, The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass um, as the person who takes over from God from the Ancient of Days in Philip Pullman. But what he is, he's a, he's a midrashic, or a Kabbalistic angel, rather. Um, he is the recording angel. So if you are recorded in the Book of Life each year, it's Metatron who is the scribe who puts your name in the Book of Life. So he's the recording angel and the only angel who is permitted to sit in the presence of the Lord because he's sitting and recording, scribing in the Book of Life. Um, so all of this is in Gustafson's book. It's a great book. Dictionary of Angels, including the Fallen Angels. Um, for the humans, the ones who really matter are, well, Adam and Eve. Um, later on, there will be mention of the future. What happens? They eat the apple. I mean, it's a spoiler. It's not really a spoiler, but they eat the apple. <laughs> they get kicked out, um, but they're shown the future. And um, the future, they're basically shown in biblical terms. One living person is mentioned in Paradise Lost, besides Milton himself, who just uses the word I. Um, but there is one person. He's actually not alive when Paradise Lost is written, but he was a person Milton met. So there is one person Milton actually met in Paradise Lost. Anyone know who? Galileo. So Milton went and traveled to Italy after um, 
he had been an undergraduate at Cambridge, um, and he spent a lot of time in Italy, and he went to visit Galileo, who at the time was um, essentially had to um, um, recant his um, account of the heliocentric solar system, um, but still believed it. And um, Milton talks about uh, the Tuscan astronomer looking through his telescope. And that Tuscan astronomer actually is Galileo, who Milton met. So um, it's an incredible honor that Milton does to Galileo um, to put him in the poem as the one contemporary person in the universe who's in the poem. But really, the human beings who matter are Adam and Eve. So that's the dramatis personae. Um, and after that, everyone else has some reference or other to bits of mythology, bits of um, the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid um, that you may or may not know. Um, if you have the experience, which a lot of people have, and which I think Milton was hoping people would have, of reading the Aeneid or reading the Odyssey or reading the Iliad after reading Paradise Lost, your experience of reading those works will be to find bits of Paradise Lost all over them. You'll read the Aeneid and you'll say, oh my goodness, Aeneas is just like Satan trying to get to solid land. Um, oh my goodness, this trick is just like a trick that Odysseus pulled. Um, there's also a lot of Ovid in Paradise Lost, a lot of the metamorphoses in Paradise Lost. But all of that is if you recognize it, great, and if you don't, that's fine. Um, because you can tell the story for itself. Okay, the poem also plunges, as they say, in medias res, um, which we talked about. That's how epics begin. Um, right in the middle of things, not, we don't start at the beginning and give backstory and so on, but we start right in the middle of the action. We plunge into the middle of the action. So here the action is what has happened before the opening of Paradise Lost. Where are we? What's just happened? Yeah. Um, Michael has just chased all the fallen angels with the army out of uh, heaven, and they've just, I guess, landed in hell. Yeah, where they're stunned into unconsciousness, and they land on a lake of bur in a lake of burning fire, a lake burning with liquid fire, um, and then they come to. And they look around, and they see that they're in hell. So how they got there, we're going to find out later from Raphael, um, how they lost the battle in heaven. But what we find is we see them after they've just lost that battle. Um, and they are in hell, and they can't believe where they are. Um, OK, so there they are in hell. What, what's the first thing they do? I mean, I think it's worth just plot summarizing the first couple of books of Paradise Lost. Yeah. Satan rallies them. Like, he parts the liquid fire, I think it says, and he rallies them back onto whatever little land that they've been given. Solid fire. Yeah. Yeah. It burned with solid as the lake with liquid fire. Um, and there's no light there, but only darkness visible, which serves only to discover sights of woe. So it's utterly dark, um, but it's like the darkness is such that they can, the way we see with light reflecting to our eyes, in hell they see with darkness reflecting into their eyes. And what they see are sights of woe. Remember, this is a blind poet describing this, describing this darkness visible. Someone who's got an intensely visual imagination, as you'll see if you haven't seen it yet. If you don't see that yet, you will see. He's got an intensely visual imagination. But when he writes Paradise Lost, He's been blind now for um, you know a decade or so um, after having been going blind for a while before that. Um, but he didn't lose his visual sense. Um, so he rallies them, and they get onto dry but still fiery land. And then what happens? Yeah. Um, they hold a council. Yeah. Yeah, different advice. Um, so the first thing they do is they actually build a palace. 
Um, who builds it? Anyone know? Apparently he was the one that was in charge of making like beautiful things in heaven. heaven. He's also the reason why men search for gold and, and like jewels and things. No, that's Mammon. No, oh, it's not the same person. Sorry? No? The architect of heaven? Sorry? Did you say Hephaestus? Hephaestus. Hephaestus, yeah. How, how is he known in Osonian land? Mulciber. Yeah. So um, in Greek mythology, he's known as Hephaestus. In Roman mythology, either Vulcan or Mulciber, but Milton tells us Mulciber. So if you look at the end of book one, um, it's a particularly famous passage. Um, Start at line 722. How many of you have read Pullman, by the way, his dark materials? I thought more people had. Okay. Um, because Pullman is very explicit that his dark materials is based on Veritas Lost. Um, so it would be hard to be more explicit. <laughs> yeah. Um, the ascending pile stood fixed her stately height. People see that? And straight the doors opening their brazen folds discover wide within her ample spaces or the smooth and level pavement. From the arched roof pendant by subtle magic, many a row of starry lamps and blazing crescents fed with naphtha and asphaltus yielded light as from the sky. So naphtha is the Greek word for petroleum. Um, the hasty multitude admiring entered, and the work some praise and some the architect. His hand was known in heaven by many a towered structure high where sceptered angels held their residence and sat as princes whom the supreme king exalted to such power and gave to rule each in his hierarchy the orders bright. So the architect has built half of heaven where the angels keep their residence. There's an echo here of Wyatt. Do people hear it? The long love that in my thought doth harbor and in my heart doth keep his residence. So where many a sceptered angel kept their re held their residence and sat as princes whom the supreme king exalted such power and gave to rule each in his hierarchy the orders bright. Nor was his name unheard or unadored in ancient Greece. And in Ausonian land, what's Ausonian land? Ladder? Sorry. Italy, Italy yeah. Um, and in Ausonian, and that's um, what Virgil calls it. And in Ausonian land, men called him Mulciber. And how he fell from heaven, they fabled. Thrown by angry Jove, sheer o'er the crystal battlements. From morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day, and with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. So that's the story that men tell of the fall of Malsiber. Do people know where they tell that story? Does anyone recognize that story? I think that's, that's the Greek myth of Hephaestus, that's how he gets... He's, he becomes a cripple, basically, because Zeus throws him off Olympus. Right. Zeus throws him off Olympus. Do you know why? I thought it was Jove, because she was so angry that he was ugly, so she threw him away. Who did? Wait. He's the son of Zeus and Hera, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, but so... But they like, all are. I know, the story that I read was I've, like... I've heard she, that one, too. Yeah, but she really wanted a baby by Zeus that was beautiful, so he would stop, like, sleeping around with other women. And when she saw he was ugly, she like, screw this, and, like, threw him over the side <laughs> of the mountain. Okay, that's... Uh, there. The, you know, there are a million different stories for each god, and it's probably because they're different traditions. And But there's, there's a particular thing that Milton is thinking of right here. The story is told in the first person. Hephaestus tells this story. Anyone know where? in the Iliad. So at the very end of the book one of the Iliad, exactly the same place in book one of the Iliad as this is occurring in book one of Paradise Lost, Hera says to Hephaestus, um, can you help me convince Zeus? And Hephaestus says, no, you know I tried to help you once before. 
and to distract him so you could do one of your things. And he got so angry that he picked me up and threw me out of heaven over the ramparts of Olympus. And I fell from dawn to noon, from noon to dewy eve, until I fell upon Lemnos, the Aegean Isle, and went limping thence. So in fact, what you have here, um, I don't know if there's ever a way to do this, but um, here is probably from um, line 741 to 746, you have the best ever translation of Homer into English that was ever done. Um, Four lines of Homer now, or three lines of Homer, turned into Milton's Paradise Lost. And it's an exact translation, except that it's third person instead of first person. But he wants you to know, either reading Paradise Lost or later on reading the Iliad, um, that this is an exact translation, that what's happening here is that the Iliad and Paradise Lost are running on the same track for four lines. Yeah? So are, are we supposed to assume that this is operating on this kind of like omnimythic level where, yeah. yeah, so pagan gods are in fact fallen angels? Yes, right. exactly. That's because in the catalog of the fallen angels, um, what Milton says is um, their names have been erased from heaven. That's part of their punishment. Nor had they yet among the sons of Eve got themselves new names. But, he says, here's what they will be called. Mammon and Belial and Beelzebub and Isis and Osiris and so on. They're known to every culture, but most of those cultures don't realize that what those, what those beings they worship are are fallen angels, are rebel angels are um, figures who are counter to the true God. So what Milton is doing, he's not the only person to do this by any means, um, nor is he wrong to be doing it because it's something that people are still doing. But what Milton is doing is he's assuming that all Middle Eastern um, mythology or Middle Eastern theological um, narrative um, that they're all variations of each other. He doesn't know about Gilgamesh, which was only um, really put together in the 20th century. Um, but the story of Jupiter, the story of Zeus, the story of Ra or of Jupiter Ammon, um, and the story of the Hebrew god, there are lots of similarities among those stories. And Milton recognized the similarities. He didn't think there's the um, Hebrew... Um, set of stories and then the um, Greek and Roman set of stories, he, he realized that they were all connected, that they all had the same roots. Um, he didn't know the Sanskrit um, roots very much. He knew a little bit of them. Um, but they all, they all interacted with each other and they all go back to certain primal stories that, that um, people were telling all over the place. So Milton's version of this is, yes, the stories Homer told are relevant here. They're as relevant as biblical stories, except that Homer got wrong who the people he was writing about were. He thought he was writing about gods or said he was writing about gods, but the gods he was writing about were actually fallen angels. Not Jove. Jove is God himself. Jove, Jehovah is God himself, but the way he appears in Homer is a distortion of the true God. Um, Milton invocates the muses, in particular Urania, who is the muse of, anyone know? It's the muse that Milton will um, do an invocation to in book nine. So you know there are nine muses, right? Calliope? Anyone? Talia? Yeah, what's Talia the Musa? Comedy? Um, I think of theater, but maybe of comedy. Are we, are we supposed to be naming them or saying what they are? No, do you know any names of the Musas? Are you uh-huh, Of what? Uh, Cleo is history. Um, Terpsichore? Dance? Yeah. Um, look them up on, oh, I don't know, Wikipedia. 
Um, so Urania is the muse of astronomy, the muse of the sky. Um, her name means sky. And that's the muse that Milton um, invokes. Why? Because he's writing about heavens. He's writing about things that happened in the heavens. Um, but he invokes a, um, a Greek muse, but what he explicitly says is, um, oh, I'm sorry, the invocation to book seven, um, descend from heaven Urania <laughs> by that name, if rightly thou art called, whose voice divine following above the Olympian hill I soar, above the, the flight of Pegasian wing, the meaning, not the name, I call. So it's not the name that matters. It's the meaning of the name. The names can get wrong. The, among the sons of Eve, they can get themselves a new name. It's the meaning that he calls, the meaning that matters. So does anyone know what Satan means? The adversary. Um, Milton will translate it as the enemy. Satan doesn't call himself Satan in the first half of Paradise Lost. That's the name that he's given by God and by those who have defeated him. But Satan doesn't see himself as the adversary in the first half of Paradise Lost. That is, he doesn't see himself as simply an oppositional figure. Something happens to him so that in the second half of Paradise Lost, he embraces that name, as you will see. I rejoice in the name, he says. But in the first half, he doesn't. So naming doesn't actually tell you who's who, but it gives you some sense of figuring out who the characters are even though the names might not be right. It's the meanings that matter. So the fallen angels among the sons of Eve get themselves new names, and when they get themselves new names, then um, we recognize who they turn out to be. Greek gods, Roman gods, um, Egyptian gods, and nymphs and satyrs and so on. Um, yeah? How important is it that we understand the hierarchies of angels? Like Not even okay. slightly. <laughs> What's a principality? I don't know. Yeah, it's just Milton knows what Aquinas had to say about those things. Okay. They're kind of important in Dante. Not that important, but a little important in Dante. Um, Milton actually doesn't follow the standard order. Um, it's not thrones, dominations, princedoms, virtues, powers. That's the order Milton always gives. But that's not the actual order um, in the scholastic philosophers. Why does Milton give that order? Because it's metrical um, and because it sounds grand. I mean, who wouldn't want to be either a throne, a domination, a princedom, a virtue, or at least a power? Wouldn't that be grand? Um, but it's just great. Thrones, dominations, princedoms, virtues, powers. Um, but no, you don't need to know that. See, this is like, do we really need to know dates? No. You need to know Paradise Lost, the greatest non-dramatic poem like in the world, in the modern world. So um, just let it be powerful. Every time you stop to figure out a date or a name or who's really whom, um, you're just dodging its power, which who can blame you, but still. Um, OK, so here's the story from Homer. And how he fell from heaven, they fabled. Who's the they there? Homer. What's the word fabled mean? I'm sorry, where are we? Um, book one, line 741. Yeah, So, what does the word fabled mean there? Yeah. It means it's not true. Yeah. Yeah, they told a fabulous story. Um, you know fabulous means not true, right? Um, so they told something that was fabulous, not true, but fabulous. So how he fell from heaven, they fabled. Thrown by angry Jove, sheer o'er the crystal battlements. From morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve. A summer's day, and with the setting sun, dropped from the zenith 
like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. Thus they relate, because it's very relatable, thus they relate very famous enjambment, erring. So that's the story they tell, erring. They were wrong. That story was erroneous. What does the word ERR mean? To err. To err. To, to do wrong. To do wrong. What else? To make a mistake. To make a mistake. Um, anyone know its Latin root? What? To wander. So um, Milton will later describe himself as perhaps, well, it's actually a good passage to put in juxtaposition to this. Go back to the invocation of Book 7. Um, so we'll just start at the, at the beginning of that again. Descend from heaven, Urania, by that name, if rightly thou art called, whose voice divine, following above the Olympian hill, I soar above the flight of Pegasian wing. Who's Pegasus? Anyone know? No, horse with wings. Yeah, okay, horse with wings, good. The Bellerophon. You're thinking of Theseus there. Oh. Um, Which one was it? The Chimera. To kill the Chimera, yeah. yeah. Um, but Milton has gone higher than the flight of Pegasian wing. Um, Pegasus comes from Mount Parnassus, from the stream of Helicon which is the stream of inspiration. Um, so he's soared, soared above that. The meaning, not the name I call. I followed you. The meaning, not the name I call. For thou, nor of the muses nine, even though there is a muse named Urania, he's saying the person I'm really following was not one of the classic muses. For thou, nor of the muses nine, nor on the top of old Olympus dwellst, but heavenly born. Hang on to that idea, because one of the things that Satan is going to say when he first sees Adam and Eve, he looks at them with wonder, and then he says, earthborn, perhaps, but yet to heavenly spirits bright, little inferior. So we're earthborn, not heavenly born, and yet Satan is stunned by human beauty when he comes to earth. So the meaning, not the name I call for thou, nor of the muses nine, nor on the top of old Olympus dwells, but heavenly born before the hills appeared or fountain flowed, thou with eternal wisdom didst converse, wisdom thy sister, and with her didst play in presence of the almighty father, pleased with thy celestial song. Up led by thee, into the heaven of heavens I have presumed an earthly guest and drawn imperial air, I tempering, with like safety guided down, return me to my native element. So bring me back to earth. I've gone to heaven with you, and you have managed to allow me to breathe there, but I must return to earth, my native element. Return me to my native element, lest from this flying steed unreined, as once Bellerophon, though from a lower climb, dismounted on the Aelian field, I fall erroneous there to wander and forlorn. So you wander erroneously. The second to last line of Paradise Lost. Anyone know the last two lines? famous last two lines, they hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. So that's Adam and Eve departing Eden. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. So wandering and error are connected in this poem. The word error means to wander. When you're wrong, it's because you're wandering from the right path, wandering from the straight and narrow. To make an error is to wander off from um, the correct 
is to deviate. Um, for Milton, what that means is the idea of error, this is also true in Spencer, um, but that the idea of error can mean something as terrible as sin, or it can mean something as innocuous as a kind of narrative improvisation, just um, spinning your wheels and um, seeing where they take you. Um, there's a huge range of meaning in the word er or in the word error. And um, it's not a good thing if you're supposed to always be tightly focused and straight ahead, but it's not necessarily that bad a thing either to err, to wander, to um, hang out and not to be intent on getting where you're going. Um, so when he says, thus they relate erring or erring, at line 747 of book one, of Homer. That error doesn't necessarily mean what fools they knew nothing. It can mean, yeah, you know, they were telling a really good story, and it wasn't the straight-ahead true story, but it's still a story worth relating. Thus they relate, erring, for he with his rebellious route fell long before. So, the story of how he fell, Homer tells wrong, but not that wrong, because he did fall. He was thrown out of heaven by the forces of God the Father, and he did fall, and he did fall for a whole day and longer. But he didn't land in Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. He landed in hell. And what did he do there? He then built the palace. What's it called? Pandemonium. Pandemonium. Yeah, that's where the word comes from. You know, if you go to South Street and South Street Station or Park Station, you say, oh my God, it's pandemonium here. You're actually quoting Milton. Um, that was his invention, that word. Um, what does it mean? All yeah, place of all demons. Um, so it's where all the demons go. And then they have their council. So in the council, what are the pieces of advice given? What? And say, do we just remember which angel said what? No. Um, one of them said that they might as well just fight and fight with all they have because nothing could be worse than what they're suffering now. One of them. And said if they get annihilated, it would be that, better. Yeah, it'd be better. Um, one of them said that they should just keep quiet and like take this punishment for a while, and maybe God will forget, and maybe God will even grow merciful, and maybe things will get better. Mm-hmm. And the third one um, was that they should try and, since they, there'd be absolutely no way for them to, to really do anything to God or to the other angels, they should try and destroy um, humans. Or, or, and through destroying humans, they can hurt God more so than they ever would be able to if they tried an all-out assault. Yeah. But that apparently came actually from Satan versus from Beelzebub, I think mm -hmm. it was a yeah, yeah. So they've the, so basically, they're what should we do? God has defeated us, but the important thing is they think that he's defeated them. Um, is it fair? Well, do they think it's fair that he defeated them? Do they think it's just? No, they're they're certain that it's unjust. That God is a might makes right figure. That thunder made him greater as Satan says, um, that the reason they were defeated was because God had almighty power, not because God was good or right. Um, and they say, you know, it's actually, we now know his strength. He hid it from us. We didn't know how powerful he was. Now we do. And now we can take steps. Now we know what we're up against. But they nevertheless feel very strongly that they're in the right morally against God, that God has power, but they have morality on their side. So the question then is, how do you go against God? And one possibility is to fight him. One possibility is to just suck up the defeat. And one possibility is to use guile so that he may know that who overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe. So, yeah, he won through, God has more power, but they're going to engage in asymmetric 
warfare. And so their asymmetric warfare is going to be to go to this place they heard a rumor about. The rumor was a rumor of Earth and the creation of some other beings, which now will have to take their place in heaven. Is that true? Is that why we were created? What does Paradise Lost say? That's the, that's the fallen angel's view of things. Do you remember what God says about it? He says, yeah. He says, just so Satan shouldn't think that he's depopulated heaven um, of a third of the angels, I'm going to show him that I can repair that lack, if it is a lack, um, by creating human beings who will then replace them. So we actually are replacements. At least God says we're replacements. Um, which might make you wonder a little bit. Um, or not, but it's at least something to know that Milton explicitly has God saying. Um, so then they decide, okay, they'll try to find this place called Earth and destroy what God is doing there, namely us. Um, yeah? I thought that hell was like in Earth or something. Not in Milton. No? Okay. In Dante, yes. But one really important thing to know about Milton is that Milton is not... Dunn and Milton, we didn't talk about this in Dunn either, but Dunn and Milton um, belong to and are enthusiastic supporters of um, a revolution in astronomy. And they are very strong believers in a heliocentric solar system, not a, not a um, geocentric solar system. That's why Galileo was condemned for saying that the Earth went around the sun rather than the sun going around the Earth. Um, it was still Catholic doctrine in the early 1600s that the sun was the center of the universe. Um, yeah? In book three, doesn't he almost explicitly say that he's not going to say whether the Earth's revolving around the sun or the sun revolving around the Earth? Well, Raphael says, Adam says, you know, it's really weird that... Here we are, the only two um, rational beings in the world that God created. By the world, he means the universe. Um, world in that sense. Um, and every night, these stars, which are inconceivably far away, go wheeling around us. That can't be energy efficient. Um, and what Raphael says is, don't think you know. Um, it's no problem if that's how God is doing it. And it may very well be that in the future, people will try to figure out the motion of the stars and planets, and they'll come up with these incredibly elaborate systems with cycle and epicycle scribbled or. And what he's describing there is Ptolemaic astronomy. Um, that is where you have this incredibly complicated. Do people know about this? So Ptolemy could actually predict where the planets were going to be found. But the way he did it was he put the sun at the center. And then um, the planets and stars go around the sun. But as you people know what planet means in Greek? Wanderer. Wanderer. Because the planets, um, if you look at the planets and you see where they are every night in the sky, they go forth and then they sometimes kind of look like they're going backwards. Um, that's called planetary recession. They don't just go in the same direction every night. If you look at the planets carefully, they seem to change directions. And... So Ptolemy came up with this idea that everything goes around the sun in circles. But as they're going around the sun in circles, they'll sometimes circle a point on the circle that they're going around the sun in, the way the moon circles the Earth as the Earth goes around the sun. And sometimes not only will they circle a point as they're going around the sun in a kind of spiral, but they'll actually have to circle a point around the circle that's going around the point that's going around the sun. Those are all called epicycles. And Ptolemy rightly saw that if you added enough epicycles, you could um, predict where any heavenly body would be. It's just insanely complicated, and there's no reason. There's no, there's no physical theory of why planets should do that. Whereas as soon as you come up with Kepler and Copernicus and Galileo, you have a very elegant theory of why the planets seem to be where they are, which is that they're going around the sun in elliptical orbits. Um, and gravity explains that, and it's all, although um, Milton didn't know the gravity part yet, but it's all very elegant. 
So um, Adam and Eve give naive, they're naive cosmogenists. They give a naive version of what they're seeing, which is they think the sun is moving across the sky. We know that it isn't. Milton knows that it isn't. Dunn knows that it isn't. Um, but this doesn't get explained to Adam and Eve. Raphael just says, look, don't worry about it. People will worry about it, and they're going to go down bizarre byways when they try to figure it out. And what we know, modern readers, is we get to feel superior and say, ha ha, we know they don't, um, which is always fun. You know, it's always fun when you read historical fiction that way. Um, and you always know the truth about the thing that someone is being naive about in the historical fiction. Um, and then George's friend Benedict said, knocked on the door, and his mother said, George, your friend Benedict Arnold is here. And George said, oh, good. I really like him so much. Um, and we get to think, ooh, we know. So that's what Milton is doing for us, too. OK, do, if you're not done through book three, read through book three for Wednesday. If you want, they're in alphabetical order. <laughs>